Welcome back to the Hour of the Hunt podcast. Here today we have a really special guest, Michael Perry. And uh, we went through a lot of difficulties today with power being out and everything else, but we're here in the trophy room. And I got to say, it's absolutely awesome looking. When we got bucks everywhere, some bears, mountain lion, that's pretty unique. How you doing today, Michael? I'm doing good, thank you. Yeah, we had a rough day with the weather here, especially rough a couple of weeks, but we had a tree, a tree fell down about two houses down across the main power line. It took a while to get it cut off, so, so a little bit of a delay, but we're here. So how you been doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Just scouting, trying to make the best of preseason, but. So you done much summer scouting? Yeah, I meant to do more in early season, or like right after postseason, but. I got a good bit done. Probably did about 30 miles worth of it, but didn't scout everything I really wanted. Yeah. So then I just kind of went back and just kind of went through it this summer. Just kind of look everything over again. But Summertime's tough. <laughs> it is, and I don't much care for copperheads and stuff either. Uh, they don't bother me. The, the bugs, chiggers and stuff is kind of aggravating, but I spray down good with sawyers that we do. So it's, But it's just so hot, and it gets green so fast you can't really tell. A whole lot unless you're just looking, you know, just generalizing your main areas or some areas you've already been to, just getting a little bit more familiar. But as far as like going to a new place and taking off, it's tough doing that with it's so green like that. Oh, it is. Yeah, I agree with you there. Chiggers are probably my least favorite thing about summer. Yeah, that rough. So let's get into a little intro of people who might not know who you are and what do you do? Yeah, uh, I guess again, Michael Perry. From Coleman, Alabama, pretty much born and raised here. Lived in Hartsville for a little while when I was younger. But work at a chemical plant. Been doing that for 26 years now. 12-hour swing shifts. So I've you know made this statement before. Not a rich guy, just a guy that likes hunting. And you know we're we're older again, and we have pretty much got our bills situated where I can you know do a pretty good bit of hunting and save up some money and do some trips like you seen them bears and stuff. But Main passion is Alabama public land. You know, that's the main thing I really love is public land bucks, you know, trying to kill them mature ones, you know, with bow and muzzle or rifle, just whatever we can. Just we really enjoy it. And Kathy and I, we've got a camper, and then we've been doing that for a while where we carry a little dogs with us when we go camp. You know, she'll hunt half a day most times, and I'll split up and do, you know, morning hunts and evening hunts. So, but we really enjoy it, you know, and I'm glad to be talking to you. So, this is a newer podcast. Yes, brand new. This is the first episode. First? First episode. Well, I figured you'd go get Tony Myers or something first. Got to. Hey, he's in the he's in the guest list. Good deal. He's in the guest list. Awesome. Yeah, he'd be a good one, so. Oh, yeah. Hey, I've learned a lot from him talking to him over the years, so he's, I mean, he's got a lot of, he was born and raised out there, you know, real close to it, and I spent a lot of time out there. He knows it probably better than anybody I know of. Oh, yeah, I've been messing him on Facebook a good bit, trying to learn all I can. Yeah, he's a good one. He is. So, before hunting or deer hunting, you were trapping a lot. Yeah, when I was young, you know, I didn't have no way of going anything. And I, that was before I went in the Navy and, you know, being a teenager and trapping, you could you could make some decent money, you know, like Fox was bringing 55, 60 bucks in the early 80s, late 70s, and raccoons 25, 30. So, you know, of course, your muskrats bringing five or six. So, and I wanted, you know, going with my dad, I wanted to. You know, do something like that. So he fixed me up some traps, and I took off on the bicycle and, and got outside the city limits, like and found me some farmland that had trees and stuff, and found some raccoon tracks. 
made me three or four sets, and the very first day I went back tracking or checking them, I caught a big old coon, and my daddy had uh, the stuff he'd fixed me up. It's like he wasn't expecting me to catch anything, being you know, young and all that. But anyway, I caught one. This stick he'd fixed me to take care of with. That raccoon tore that thing up in about 10 seconds. So we went round and round in a creek, you know, get that took, finally took care of. But that made me so happy to be able to do that and just set the fire for the outdoors for me. That, so I'd done that for, you know, before school for several years. And then I was in the Navy for five years, went in at 17, got out at 22, and uh, started doing some more hunting a little bit, but never didn't kill a first deer till I was probably 26 or something, and then didn't kill a good buck till I was 31. Had seen, you know, my brother killed a big whopper one. That kind of changed some things up and then started bow hunting, you know, and then just just started getting more involved with it, you know. And just, well, I was a little bit slow about it to start with, so, but anyway, now, I mean, for the last 20 years, I've been, you know, just full bore, passionate about it. So it's just something I really enjoy. It's better than better than being a crazy man or a wild man doing bad stuff yeah it is yeah it is so do you think your experience in trapping helped you kind of ease into hunting and set up better yeah well trapping is but with your woodsmanship it's really it'll have it helps so much because to be an accomplished trapper so i read a bunch of books about trapping tom randa stuff and uh some uh I can't even think of his other guy's name, but anyway, Hawkins or Hawkers or something like that. But anyway, read a bunch of books, and they always, someone would always talk about to to establish yourself as a good trapper, you'd be able to catch something without using any kind of sense. So to do that, you've got to learn how this animal is using the land, the, the creek, or the woods, or whatever, to get them to put their foot on a one-inch piece of steel somewhere. So I learned how to do that with coyotes and, and uh, mink and, and raccoons to the extent because you just, you could figure out how they were traveling, whether they were putting their feet, which size of creeks they were using, and then whether the coyotes and stuff, how they were running fence lines, or how they were hooking to the outside of an old logging road or a trail where they could peep around and see, you know, food plots or whatever. So just learning how animals, you know, any kind of animal is, is using the woods, it, it really helps you with deer. So, so my big buck's the same way as learning why his footprint is somewhere then learning how you can catch him putting that footprint somewhere is is part of my challenge on that and it goes back to trapping and i believe if if and if people would trap more because we really need it for the turkeys and you know some more predator control but anyway if you're doing that has really helped a lot so that's the interesting point to make i've never even thought about trapping as being good for turkeys and stuff that's really interesting you say that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you got to think a turkey is a ground-nesting animal, okay? And they lay 12, 15 eggs, whatever it is. And then they're a daylight animal. They don't move around at night like deer do, whatever. So they, so anything that eats eggs or babies, you know, you got raccoons, you got possums, you got skunks, you got, you know, I don't think we got any weasels anymore, but gray fox, red fox, coyotes, you know, and then you got hawks and eagles to an extent, so or snakes, you know, just a bunch of things. So the more the more control we have over bobcats and another one, the more control you have of controlling them numbers, you know, and getting them down lower, you got a better chance of turkeys, you know, raising up. So you'll have a you'll increase your population. If not, and that's with any kind of predator, you let predators get too much, then some kind of the animals they hunt is gonna take a downswing and then you're gonna have the predator starve and then the animals that they're hunting will have to be an upswing, so us being hunters or outdoors people can control that at a medium and then have like a stable number of, of everything if we could. So. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I do think that woodsmanship is a skill that is definitely 
dying out. I think too many people are just trying to get straight into hunting and go buy stuff they see online and different kind of tactics and stuff. But I think woodsmanship will help them out a lot more than knowing these tactics, for instance, they see online or something like that. You know, public land is another whole different thing because you're limited on what you can do. You're not supposed to put any kind of, you know, feed out or no kind of minerals. You know, I think white salt or something you can do legally, but, you know, as far as food plots, you don't have any control of that. So you're very limited. You've got to have a better woodsmanship to have a better chance of being successful. So where private land, you know, you can pour out corn or, you know, fix up some real pretty food plots and just wait for, wait for them like that. Where, you know, public land, since they, you can't really control what pressure, or you don't really see all the pressure on public land. Where if, like, if you're in a hunting club, you can kind of figure out where people are hunting and, and kind of get a better, actually pattern them people better than you could say, on, on public land. But, yeah, it's it's a whole different thing on public. And it may, you got to have a lot better woodsmanship to be a successful person year to year. Yeah, I, def- I definitely agree with that. I could use more of it myself, but I'm learning as I go. Well, you young cat, you got you got plenty of time. Don't be rushing. <laughs> don't be rushing. Just you know, that's that's you know, some of the younger younger folks they ever see success so much on TV and stuff. They might you know try to overthink things or try to go too fast. I'm definitely sure I overthink things all the time, but rolling with it. So when you find an area that you're say looking at on a map or you've been there past seasons or whatnot, or just seen or remember. How do you prepare for it, and are you saying that and then going there the next day, like, I want to go try that spot? Are you looking at that, throwing cameras at it, waiting and seeing how it plays out? Most of the time I'm trying to do everything ahead of the season ahead of time. You know, I've learned, you know, like I've been running trail cameras since back when I had film in them, you know. So, and learning, you know, you can – it's hard to go flying into a place, especially in big woods area, and one day or a weekend or even a season because you're limited on your gun hunts. You know, bow hunting you can pretty much do all season, but but trying to figure a place out or even be halfway figure a place out in one season is so tough because the big woods deer can be more nomadic, so you got to have it might take a week for them to move around. So so I use trail cameras and pinch points edges. You know, everybody knows I start out with creek crossing or walking drains just trying to find tracks and find a big track or, or find big beds, you know, and then and correlate where I can put a, a camera where a place where I could hunt where I know I can get in because that's the biggest thing. Access is, is more important than probably the hunting part because getting in there at the right time without them knowing you're there, that goes back to the trapping thing is, you know, don't let any animal know that you're hunting them or pursuing them. You know, if, you, if you're if you tipping them off and their senses are, you know, up a lot more, then it's, it makes it that much tougher. So I try to plan it ahead of time, you know, see what trail cameras show me. I won't check them but twice a year, February and August most of the time, and kind of see what's going on for the for the next season. If I don't, I'll pull that camera and move it. If, it, if I see big bucks on there during a, time, a week time frame, say multiple bucks, I'll leave the camera there and kind of figure out when I want to hunt by them dates and if the bucks are big enough. And you kind of pay attention. I keep it stuff roped down and kind of pay attention to what kind of mass crop or, or stuff you had food sources during that season and kind of play all that together. You can go in deeper. You know, you got people that look at the moon versus how they're traveling or the or the weather. And I don't really I – don't, I worry more about the dates. And, you know, I just don't – it's just hard for me to, well, work stuff, just try to, you know, keep up with everything. Just get too in deep to it. and 
and I might I might worry about you know stress myself out trying to overthink it. So the dates on the on the movement means a whole lot to me, and just I try to plan it ahead of time, season to season, have me me and Kathy say eight to ten spots in the area that we can move in in a three to three or four week period on our main place, and then we're, again after that, you know, we're chasing the rut kind of, so we got places figured out and or not really figured out, but kind of aware of ahead of time for three or four different management areas and generally four different management areas. So it's a lot of postseason scouting and a lot of camera work basically. So when you when you're looking at a place that you know you want to hunt, how what are you looking for in your access? Like how in a big with setting I find it kinda of hard to know exactly where the deer are. Like what's some ways that you're accessing it without tipping off all those other deer? Well the the best way on, on any kind of access for deer hunting is some kind of water, you know, and that, that that's the least intrusive, least scent, you know, but but you can't always do that. So you've got old logging roads and then some of the places the the food plot roads are that go back miles, whatever, you can you can cut down them pretty quick quick and, and easy, you know, to get far away. But that's still not telling you exactly where the deer's at. You gotta kinda have a little bit of history with them. But I always try to the coming in from the bottom on the water is great as long as you're not coming through them so you know if you're i use water most of the time to go to uh, them thermal hubs and what everybody or, or wagon wheels or you know transition areas with funnels that we always talk you know that we used from years ago but now they just everybody's got so detailed into it they call them thermal hub because of the way the thermals are and i didn't really even think about thermal i just i always wanted to hunt somewhere where more things come together that had deer sign and just that was my thought process i didn't really think about the thermal hub or the thermals or the you know, I just want to make sure that, that I was by the water and the wind was pulling toward me and where I could see two or three points or, or two or three transition areas kind of coming together. So you, But somehow in order to get to them places without being without crossing trails, and some of them I walk atop because it might be easier and just depends and go down and cross one holler and pop over a side because most of the time in the mornings I'm trying to, with that type of terrain, I'm trying to be higher if, if if everything is right, you know, where the seeds, where the, the mass crop, and if we ain't had a bad drought and the bucks are still using the upper parts. You know, last season when we had a bad drought, they dropped down because the browse were lower. So browse means a lot for mature bucks for me as, as more of a, a key as far as the food source versus mass crop. So, but it's, you, got, you just got to plan your access where you're not crossing any trails. And not and and being able to hunt what you want to hunt with the right thermal or the right wind, you know, and that, some of that you got to go in and try it with milkweed or whatever to understand that because it it can change with with sunlight, with you know clouds, you know how many leaves on a tree. I mean, it it'll stress you out if you if you're a real detailed person. So sometimes I don't I don't worry about it as much, especially gun hunting because I always try to set up where if a deer gets to a point where I think it could smell me or if a thermal is going to that before it changes that I'll have them shot when it gets to there. So just make sure I'm concentrating and watching what I'm supposed to be watching. Does that change any on uh, evening hunts when you do it? Evening hunts, I'm 90% of the time I'm going, I'll, I'll go into a bottom. You know, I've, I don't, you know, I've learned over the years to find places that, you know, you got to be pretty close to where you think they're bedding at to be successful in evenings to me, unless unless it's player, an area that's undisturbed and they, they'll travel more. 
But once that pressure gets on, that morning pressure, they know they know everything's changed for a morning hunt for a gun hunt. You know, bow hunt's gonna be a little bit different because you're early season. But they the deer already heard the trucks and the gravel popping and smell people or whatever. So they're not if they do move, you know, the does are you know ain't as nervous about it as as a big bucks are. They'll start moving right before dark. So try to be. I try to figure out a place where they're coming down off of something pretty steep. I know they're using as as bedding, you know, and when it's in the winter time or you know later on gun season because of it'll be cooler and they'd be using them secondary points that's a little bit higher up for their bedding stuff. You know, doe is going to use blow down points and ridges, you know, somewhere where the sun's where they can get sun to stay warm. So they're you know so, but I always try to do that in the evening, stay in the bottom and and come in watching them where they'll be the shady side first, basically. So for your rut tactics, are you you like to go back on your historical data off your trail cameras. Right. And I'm sure you already have your spots pre-planned. What makes you go to one spot versus the other? Just whichever one you're having more activity on? Right. Or yeah. just do you have your data over the years of? That over the years, and, and you can kind of, you know, I'll spot check sometimes, even when I do that hunt, but when I come down at lunch, I guess you was always going to come out at lunch. It's, it's to kind of see if there's any kind of, you know, you'll see some kind of sign or something, some kind of browse, some kind of fresh track so you can see the trail from the, the tree, you know, or maybe a scrape or whatever, but some kind of activity that it looks that looks like something's going on. But a lot of times, well, I have it staged. I'll, I'm going to try them for two or three days anyway, and maybe four if, if, I'm, if I'm confident about it, you know. So you might, you know, if you're not seeing anything and you're not seeing any kind of, you know, activity at all, it, it makes it tough to stay there, but by the being a big woods area and especially the main area, as I know, it might take three or four days of a doze in heat for them to come back around checking something. Because them boat, them does, unless you have a, a, a like bomb go off or they come in and done a bunch of cutting or something's changed drastically, they're gonna pretty much use the same style of bedding areas. But they might. It depends on how what kind of mass crop you have, how where they could be in at that week. Because they'll move around a little bit. They'll move kind of nomadic so but if you got plenty of white oaks plenty of red oaks that's it's pretty much going to stay similar so. do you catch older age class bucks using terrain kind of like younger bucks or you think or they use it totally different way the, the older ones the way they move period is going to be completely different they don't you know a younger buck when he's, he's just going to be walking through like he's going you know going to a skate rink or going Go meet his buddies, whatever. When a bigger buck, 90% of the time, unless he's right on a doe, he's only taking a few steps at a time and, and keeping the wind checked or, or visual looks. You know, he's going to stay in shadows. He's going to always stop by something that's kind of protecting him like. He's always, he don't hardly ever stop out in the wide open. It's, it's pretty amazing to watch him. And, you know, over the years, I've, I've you know, pay attention to him because you can, I've watched, I know, at least five different bucks walking they at lunchtime and you think you can see everything is you know clear day and they'll stop and and if you turn your head and look back you won't be able to see them that's how they blend in and where they know where to stop at for some reason some kind of canny ability they have to stop somewhere where it's a shadow or or enough little trees right there where they you just, unless you see them move you can't see them so you know paying attention to stuff like that over the years has is, is, is really helped and you know it's, it's the newer generation, the cell phones and, and stuff that they carry with them to mess with, if you ain't concentrating all the time, you know, something can, you know, get away from you. So I, I try to, I know it gets boring at times, but you got to, you got to concentrate 
uh, even scanning through and just seeing something parallel, a line that's parallel, and you're not sure exactly what it is, kind of look at with binoculars or something because it could be a, a you know a deer or it could be a log. But you know there ain't a whole lot of stuff. It's, it's a parallel line in the woods. So kind of watching that, and if you see any kind of light colored spot or a white spot, you know, kind of verify that. You know, and then of course other sounds and stuff. But there's a it's just so much you know, things to look for with a mature buck because he's well, he's a whole different animal by the time he's four years old. You know, I've said this a hundred times now as he's seen and heard, you know, and smelled so much stuff. By that, by that time, he he knows he knows what time of the year it is. He keeps he can keep up with probably got a calendar back there at his bed. I don't know. But anyway, they're, they're a totally different animal. So you got to always be prepared for that part and you know, understand that he's completely different. You know, you're not hunting a normal deer. I agree with that. I'm, I, I would like to know how many people have been snoozing away in a tree stand and how many bucks have gotten by. Yeah, I know what's happened to me, I guarantee you. It just depends on where it swings shift. I was asleep one time. I told myself, this is at Sam Murphy. I was I climbed up a tree and hunted that morning, and I said, well, I'm going to take me a nap for an hour. And I kicked back went sleep, and, uh, I woke up hearing something, and I looked, and there was a guy that was already 25 foot off the ground climbing 30 <laughs> feet from me. He hadn't seen me, and I didn't hear anything until then, you know, so you know what could go by you, a buck or whatever. So. Oh, yeah. And when I let that guy know he, when I was there, he was so mad because <laughs> he thinks I let him climb up there on purpose. But anyway, it can happen. If you snooze off, I mean, it's, you know, just like the monster one I'm saying that I killed with the mother loader, you know, I was had another younger buck come by, and then – I seen that monster when he'd already come in my sight line like 20, 30 yards without me seeing him. You know, there's enough greenery and stuff. So if he'd have made it another 10 yards, I would have never seen him. I mean, he'd been gone. So, and they ain't no telling how many times that happened, you know. So, well, it was really green then, too. Yeah, that year was green. So, so they can, they, and I'm, I'm serious and mature, but they're always walking somewhere, some kind of edgy, something other, or, or leafy stuff, or, you know, um, high stem count stuff, whatever. They're using everything to their advantage, you know, over you. So you, it, there's a lot of stuff you got to try to pay attention to. But it, and it, if you're doing that all year or a bunch, it, it can be taxing on your body and on your eyes and stuff. But if you want to kill a monster one, the the better you get at doing that stuff, you know, the better your chances. And it's worth it at the end, but it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. So what's the, what's the story on the bench buck? I'm sure everybody's heard it, but. I think it's a, I think it's an amazing buck, and it's probably one of the nicest ones I've seen coming out of there, personally. Well, I mean, I mean, I ain't bragging or anything, but as far as from what I know, he's top, he's in the top ten easily from the man's area, and I think he's probably around five or six. I know if there's three two hundred inches that I know of, then there's a one ninety nine. So, so that's you know he's five or six or something like that. I mean, he's a he's an amazing buck. There's that. We was t- you know we was talking earlier. There's several types of genetics out there that's from way back. You know, I don't. Know, some of it can be Alabama deer. Some of it could be in the Michigan stuff back from the 20s. But there's several different types of genetics, and then at the right time, the right food sources for three or four years, whatever, they can, you know, blossom into an amazing animal. It's just, you know, you wouldn't think, you know, down here that they could do that, but they do. Is so. Uh, but um, hey, I I'd had pictures of him for. I know when he was four and a half and he had, you know, all the stickers like it was, you know, and that's another thing is most of the time when there's a, a monster buck, he'll be showing that he's going to be a monster by the time he's four. 
So, I mean, it just they just got it, whatever it is. They got it, some kind of freaky gene or whatever it is. So, but four and a half, he was, I couldn't tell you what his score was, but he I, he was probably in the 140s and uh, had a bunch of stickers. But he, I don't know if he had rutted a bunch or or what was going on, but he was real skinny in February and was still carrying his rack. I had like two or three pictures of him in November and two or three pictures in February, and he was running with two or three other boats in February, and they'd already shed the horns, and he he hadn't, and he just was skinny. So I showed it to the biologist. I was kind of worried about him a little bit. So, But I I waited for the next season, hunting like he was there, because like, like I say, again, I don't mess with them cameras and uh, until, you know, like August, and, and uh, I, that's how I knew he was walking around in February. So. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't lucky. Didn't see him. I and mean, when I checked cameras in February, I had him coming by. It was like the next day after a hunt, I was there at daylight, following three does, and he built his body up real good. And his rack was big; it was like 160s probably, but he didn't have all the stickers. He had a couple splits, but, but still alive. And that, you know, that gave me hope. And um, I was talking to Jamie McKay about it. You know, you you probably know him, right? So yeah. I was talking to him about it, you know. I said, "That sucker, he's alive. He's gonna be, you know, big, big this year." And I said, "I want, I want, I'd like to give him the muzzleloader. That was my thing. Is I was wanting to give him a muzzleloader if I could, but I wasn't gonna take off until early because that, you know, that early muzzleloader hunt is 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 you know pre ruts and it's gonna be tougher. So I'm not really killing anything out there with a muzzleloader. So, so I didn't take off any days. I had one day when I worked off that I would go there, but I was going to carry that mud loader all season for the next gun hunts and stuff and just try to give him that mud loader because I wanted to try to get one record but with that. So, but anyway, I missed him by a day there and had the camera pictures of him showing up daylight, same time frame basically. So, so I went this season, that season, last day of that mud loader hunt at nine something, I had a, a good three year old or so, six or seven point nice. Nice buck. You know, a lot of people have shot him probably. And he come by in bow range, 20-something yards, messing around. I watched him eat around a wide oak. He peeled off and then just uh, he'd been gone probably 10, 15 minutes and something caught the corner of my eye and then there he was, you know, so got him, shot him with a mud loader and everybody's kind of heard the other stories, but you know, I was, I just, I knew it was a big buck when I seen him. I just only seen part of his side and then, but when I got to him, finally, I mean, it's like, you know, they, you know, because you know, being how long I've been hunting and 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 concentrating and, and my what I'm in my plans and all that, I just had come together for that part to be that big a buck. You know, I was thinking he was in the 170s. You know, and then, yeah. But you know, then uh, we finally got him to checking station. That ball just he rough scored him 194, I think. And then I I told my wife, oh, I don't know about that. That's because he didn't have a real wide spread, but you know, he had a bunch of stuff. His, his body and his rack kind of makes things look you know kind of different, but. Didn't really know he was going to be a state record or anything until uh, I was going to have him scored by butt matches and somebody called me and was saying something about it. They they had actually, you know, knew that the Chad Morgan butt was 190 and said they thought he might beat that. And I said, I don't know. But anyway, ended up being 196 and 38. So that's, I mean. Chad Morgan had an amazing buck, too. Yeah. I remember seeing that one. That's a whopper. Man. Yeah, that's a brute. Yeah, his, I picked him horns up somewhere and then. I think he had him at the deer show. I think it was him. Them suckers were heavy. You know, he's got real good mass, just a big old wide frame. That's one of them classic genetic, like Tony Meyer style, but just a big old wide long beam, you know, thick horn deer. So, but yeah, it was a whopper. Yeah, I think it was a tank. I thought it was crazy how much your your deer is. It was in a rut pretty much, wasn't it? He was fixing to be. It was, it was the week before. You know, it was killed in November 5th, and then um, 
you know, the early conception dates from studies they had years ago was like around the 13th, so November. So. I remember his head looked so small because of how swollen his neck his was. Neck. You know, the picture kind of made him look funny because the way he was sitting it, but he was, he was, he hadn't lost an ounce of weight yet, and he was big and, you know, chunky. Wasn't real long, buddy, dear, but he's a big old stocky, big neck, you know, just a tank of his ear. So. But that was fun getting out of the woods. Oh, you know, it's great. You know, <laughs> I don't never. That's part of the fun. A lot of people say, I, I hate dragons. Man, I love dragons. I don't care how long it takes because you got, I mean, the hardest part is, is putting yourself in position, you know, to get them. I tell everybody, you got to get them flat first. You get that sucker flat, you know, then you can start talk, getting him out and picking him out and all that stuff, you know. You, know, you get that sucker flat first, concentrate on that, and, you know, because that's the hardest part is putting yourself in position, you know, for it to happen. So. The sucky stuff to me is what's fun. Is when it starts to rain or it's real cold like it was last year, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I wish we get snow every year. but So you journal every single one of your hunts yeah. and journal about all your spots. How big of a part does that play for you? Well, it goes a long time in it. The trail camera data is, is I, every day we hunt, I write it down, you know, you know, especially over the last 15 years to start with, I just had calendars and I wrote down whenever I was successful and what days I hunted. So I transferred that to a journal book, say 15, 20 years ago and started keeping up with more data. Every day I'll write down where we hunted at, you know, might have a key, a code word or something, what exactly spot. And then, you know, if I seen anything or not, if I seen something and it's kind of big or freaking, I, I kind of might put the weather down or but I always put down what time it was or, you know, especially if it's something kind of unique. But all the unique features, I always write it down and keep up with it. All them, you know, I've kept up with exactly how many deer have killed and and all the time frame. I mean, I look through the, I mean, it's because you'll forget a lot of stuff over the years if you don't, you know, because so much stuff, if you're hunting a bunch like we do, so much stuff will happen sometimes and you'll forget about some of the smaller details that you, you should have wrote down. So. All right, so... I know pressure plays a big part in how much deer people see when they're out there hunting, but do you think the population health out there in Bankhead is better than what people think it is? At, at times, I really do. Especially now, I, I think it's better. So people are being more selective now. You know, last season they didn't they didn't kill that many, so but there were mature, there were good ones, mature ones. You don't in the last three or four years, you know. So I think the the actually the older population has really improved over the last five years and then, and part of that is because of what people are realizing what could happen if they pass up a two-year-old so more people are passing now believing it's, it's kind of helping i think a lot more hunters are getting a lot more knowledgeable yeah. about you know passing the younger deer and then tactics overall i think it's getting a lot better and i, I i'm seeing more people on public land which i think is good you know for public land in general yeah. It's picked up. Last season was when the numbers were down a little bit lower. I keep up with them. I ask the biologists what the numbers are. How or you know, I don't want to tell me exactly, but they're lower as far as people are are higher. And you know, the COVID year was was a real up uptick because people you know just had time. And then last season, you know, there there was pretty good bit of numbers, but it had fell off a little bit. So, but the early hunts, you know, because you know there, there's nothing else open, you know, so people are picking up on that. Population seems to be doing fine, and right now it's like we've had, you know, this year has been crazy with all the rain, so we, the greenery has come back, you know, time of 10 in the thinned areas and the cutovers and stuff. So the fawns should have been all good, and, you know, you just need, 
a couple years of that, you know, and then people passing for, you know, to get a better chance at a big one. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. So what's your, um, what's your like tips and tricks on getting deer out of the woods? Getting them out. <laughs> this is very rugged out there. It is rough. You know, deer cart now has, has changed a lot. You know, I've got one that I can backpack in, you know, and then just put it together and get there. And, uh, uh, another thing is, is having some friends that you can trust, you know, that'll come help you. And, and the jet sled, I've talked to some people, you know, you've heard about the jet sled. It's like a plastic tub sled. It's kind of long black that, uh, like a lot of people use them in the snow, but it's getting more popular. They can, you know, in the rough areas, they can get them out, you know, and they drag easier and it don't rough the hides up. I wonder how uh, durable those are. I mean, can, you know, carts pretty, you know, I, I, we, uh, pulled a wheel off a cart not too long ago and then we lost a broken thing a bearing a nut or something on one right i think it was on that big butt we broke something had to fix something up because it you because you're going over to blow down and all that stuff it, it's rough on any kind of equipment so yeah at least with a sled you don't have wheels and stuff to worry about and if it slides good on them leaves and over them logs i mean you know it, it could be a better process than a, than a cart definitely something i have to look out look out for but I bought me a pack this year, and I'm not sure. You gonna pack out? I think I will, but it, it's gonna be hard for me if I get a good buck to sit there and cut them up. I don't think I'm about to do it. That's that's my point. Is uh, I've never I've not packed one out yet. You know, they kind of frown on a little bit because they want that information. You know, and some of the management areas now they don't have as as many days that they have the biologists there to check them, so you can. You know, you're more free about packing them out. But I always love getting them up there to the checking station or wherever, and you're looking at the whole body. You know, especially, yeah. like you say, a good buck or a big buck. I mean, when you look at it already caped out, it, it takes away from it some. And I'm just, I grew up loving, you know, seeing them whole bodies and stuff. And that the dragging part to me is, the, you know, the camaraderie with your, your wife or your brother, your friends, or whoever while you're dragging it means so much to me. I just love that part of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. There's nothing like one in the bed of your truck. I mean, that's just, you can't beat that. So what's your, do you ever have some, like, secret tips that you just learned over all these years of hunting of staying warm, keeping your feet warm? Oh, staying warm? Crap, yeah. nowadays, it's a thousand times easier back when I grew up. Because back when I grew up, you know, everybody everybody just stacked on more cotton you know long them white thermals white long john stuff like that and what you didn't realize you know we didn't know when you're walking in with all that stuff on you're sweating and it's soaking up that sweat so it's once it cools off it's like sitting in a freezer or refrigerator because it's all iced up and cold so the the clothes you got nowadays the layering system the wicking stuff you know and the fleece and you know the downfield, the the puffy stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Then the hot hands, hot hands has changed a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a thousand times. I've got some coveralls that I bought. I don't know how long ago, and I ain't had them things on probably seven, eight years because the the, the clothes now. If you spend the money, I mean, it's gonna cost you a little bit, and the but it's more durable now than than years ago. But you know, you just you spend the money on buy some good stuff. You know, it's it's a game changer now to me. That's something I've learned here. Very recently, I've put a, I've invested a lot this year into clothing, but I remember uh, Wes Moy was talking about on the Southern Outdoorsman how you know he's knowing those young kids are hunting because about you know eight o'clock they'll get up, start walking. Yeah, and that was me. Mm -hmm. I'd walk in there all bundled up, get all sweaty. As soon as that sun started coming up, I was up walking around. <laughs> yeah, and I was froze. 
Yeah, I'll pack in, you know, a, a, if it's going to be cold, I'll pack in a puffier or a good wind blocker pullover. I, that's one of my favorite things. And just keep, I just don't want to sweat. If you don't sweat, you know, then once you get there and cool off a little bit and put that stuff on, if you got hot hands, use them. You know, the boots nowadays are, you know, way better. You know, a lot of people are starting to go away from the, the muck style or the, or the lacrosse style, but I still love them muck. You know, they're, to me, they're, warm and more comfortable than, than some of the lace-ups but you know a lot of people are getting more spending you know three or four hundred dollars on some good mountain lace-up boots yeah i agree with that i think for me personally i've just never really i don't like a lot of clutter like early season i'm hunting straight out of crocs really? <laughs> that's that's all i do i mean if i get in the counter with a snake i might regret <laughs> that but you know they're just light quiet uh I, I'm, I'm a big a uh, big proponent of wearing some kind of rubber boots for scent, you know, spraying them, spraying them boots with a scent killer. And, and before I go walking in too far, I just dig them into the dirt, just plow dirt over the bottoms of them, just trying to, I, because I'm, I'm, I'll take things a little bit to more extreme on some of that stuff because I, it's just, it's built my confidence and I just, I feel more comfortable doing that, you know, scent control to it, you know, I don't, you can't eliminate it completely, I don't think, but. But other than that, I'll wash my clothes in the scent stuff Kathy does and take a shower. I've got the deodorant and I've got some field wipes. You know, the we use the wildlife research stuff and it's, I mean, been doing it forever. And it's, I mean, you can look around in here and everything that you can see from where this table is, is I've used that stuff. So whether or not it works, it got whatever it is on, on the wall or standing there. You know, the bears didn't get me. I got them. So. So it, it it helps. You can reduce it. You can knock it down. I've I've had bucks to uh, stand there downwind of me and and know something was going on, but was still be able to kill them. But you know, I can remember times when I didn't use anything when a buck walked into my scent and it's like you slapped him in the nose with a boat paddle. He was turning yeah. around there and getting out of there wide open. So so I believe you can reduce it and help it. So uh, I mean I'm a real I'm gonna use scent control as long as I can you know still hunt. So. Yeah, I've had that. I've had that same experience of, you know, going in a gas station, my hunt clothes, going out there, when walking downwind of me, he just blows out of there mm-hmm. versus keeping my stuff in a tote. I like to keep my stuff in a tote with, like, pine needles and just right. leaves and stuff. Yeah. But I also I use some of that scent control stuff, too, mainly just for, like, washing my hair, deodorant, stuff right. like that. Yeah, I use all of it. So I'm just, I keep a ball spray in my backpack, you know. And the wipes, I'll keep some wipes in there, whether it be flat from toilet paper or from wiping my head off. I, if I do break a sweat, you know, I'm wiping my head off with them wipes. You know, I'm putting them in. I keep Ziploc bags in my backpack. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in it. My wife is. It just everything. I, my strategy, or that's that's another thing. I, like a tip is once you get a a system or a progress of how you're hunting that works and you're comfortable doing it, keep don't 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 stray away from it. You know, keep that stuff. Remember how you're doing it every time and 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 keep doing that you know don't you know if you find you know if you hear a tip it's you know that can play along with what you're doing you can try that you know do it but make whatever works for you make sure you don't keep keep that going you know don't get lax or don't get lazy because the days you're lazy or lax that's the all it takes about three seconds to to get your day run or get your day very successful yeah you never know when that opportunity is going to arise and it is it has got me and caught me slacking before too so Mm -hmm. That's why I don't even, I will not be on my phone unless I'm walking in the woods or walking out of the woods using my maps. Yeah, or calling somebody at your shot or, or, you know, yeah. or 
video or your harvest or something. But which I just like getting away from people out there too. Most places where we hunt now, your phone ain't gonna do you no good unless you're scrolling through pictures or something because you're not gonna get no signals. Yeah, well, I can't. If I sit there, I'll end up going through maps, looking at other stuff, so looking at where I'm hunting at. Yeah. You know. Yeah, movement associated with that is a big thing to me because deer, especially bucks, they see movement. Anything they see move or flicker or whatever, they're gonna look at it. Yeah. If you haven't seen them and they, you're still doing whatever, they'll have you figured out. And then ninety percent of the time, they're just gonna turn and slip back out, and you'll never know they were there. So. But they know you're there, and that's, they I ended your hunt for the season really in that area. But you just don't know it. So, yeah, I think I think sometimes people overlook how we're looking for the deer, looking for that movement. They're doing the same things. They're also using their nose. And whenever you sit there and you like move something back or throwing stuff in and out of your bag or whatever, you don't know when that buck has popped right. up that ridge or pop up a gap. He just seen that. Right. You may not be able to see him yet, because I know some bucks have seen me way before I've seen them. Yeah. That's why you're set up. It's got to be where you're comfortable and you're controlling your movements and can sit there relaxed and not being hurt. You know, your muscles hurting or bones hurting. You can be still for a good four or five hours without you know, having to move or whatever. Cause like you say, or I'm saying, hey, you can get busted quick with that movement. So the more comfortable you are in your in your setup or your system, whatever style you're hunting, whether it's saddle or lock-ons climbers or what you know you got to be able to sit there and be still so. what about foreign like noises like metal clinging you think metal that- is one of the worst things to me something that don't you know walking walking in through leaves and stuff you got so much other stuff armadillos make crazy amount of noise you know hogs make a bunch of noise you know they're used to hearing stuff like that and and that's one thing a buck is real good about is he's if he hears something he thinks is out of the ordinary, he's going to verify it somehow or another, you know, for sight, smell, or, or hearing. So, and uh, so just think about that. Now, metal, they know that ain't that's not normal. Yeah. You know, a large, uh, you know, you, you hear trees falling and stuff like that all the time while you're hunting, and they, they hear it all the time. They know what that is. So, that type of noise I don't worry about. You know, I generally, if, I'm, if I know I'm going to a place that, you know, pre planned, I like to have the leaves right back say 75 yards or so from whatever I'm popping off to go to to sneak in there pretty quiet and then I don't my tree stands or, or whatever I'm using is as you self strips and or some kind of you know dampening material to make any you know try to prevent anything like that from happening because it, I mean if it happens don't worry about it just you know keep on doing what you can do because they might anything else could happen you know they could be laying 200 yards away or a mile away and get on a doe and come by you or somebody kick them up so if it does happen just don't stress yourself out about it but try to keep that you know very minimal yeah i agree with that i try i don't know if it really makes a difference but to me the human it sounds very distinctive walking through the woods mm-hmm. i try to just be broken up you know i'll walk a couple steps be quiet i might walk 10 steps then stop mm-hmm. i try to just be very i don't want them to be able to figure out what i am by hearing uh-huh. whether they can or not i don't know but i try not to you know they know if like, if you're walking like you're a cat or something or you you know being sneaky walking they 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 understand that as like a threat or the predator so normally most of the time i'm walking wide open I get within, you know, a hundred yards. Whenever I don't, I stop using my headlamp because I got a certain way. I'll use a headlamp on you know for a long way. Then when I get like I call the 
the kill zone or the hunting zone, whatever, I'm going to switch into a little pin light with the young shining straight to the ground. And it's very little light. You know, it's not lighting the woods up, you know, because I've seen people, you know, from like a half mile away, it looks like they're walking yeah. in with a thing spotlight on top of their head or, or just lighting the whole woods up. You know, deer can see that. You know, some people say they don't pay no attention to it, but I don't believe it. And those headlamps shine from a good ways away. Yeah. So I'm particular about, like I say, about the, my system or how I do things. So I, I try to stick with that and just try to, I try to, it's better to be, you know, do something to an extreme than, than not enough because once you've crossed the line to the bad way, you know, it's hard to recover from it. So. I agree with that. So your book, uh, Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Land, what was the inspiration to do that book and how was it for your first book? Well, yeah. I don't know if you knew or most people know, you know, Alabama Outdoor News Magazine, you know, I wrote, you know, hunting writers for them for like 14 years and wrote, say, four or five articles that they published and I wrote a couple for Georgia Outdoor News and I've had other people come and interview me for articles and stuff. So, you know, when you, you know, as, as life goes, you know, you kind of want to do something that, that kind of leave you mark or whatever or something your grandkids can talk about, so. One, you know, when I accomplished the third book of being, you know, three different weapons and, you know, on public land, both all three of them's in the record books, you know, and then the state record, I thought, well, maybe I I feel confident about, well, you know, enough street credit or, you know, confidence that I could write a book that might help people and plus, you know, be like a lifetime accomplishment. So I talked with a guy about it and we made a plan and uh, and wrote it and, you know, it, it was I mean, it's been for, I mean, it's fine. I don't know. It ain't made me no millionaire or anything like yeah. that, but it, I mean, it's, it's done, it's made enough to, you know, to uh, pay for everything and then a little bit more money. So, and I've had good, you know, most of the people have been pretty positive. You know, I've had some negative people because one thing about me is, is I don't hide anything and I promote publicly and, you know, and what areas I hunt or what areas I kill stuff. And some people don't like it. They didn't like it cover with the, with him in front of the black warrior sign and so a lot of people don't like it but um but a lot of them do and it's just i think it helps the area the buck deserved to be on the cover of the book to me and the the uh the area that he come from deserved to be on the, the book see i agree so, i agree but, um but the book's done fine you know i'm i'm i've been happy with it you know it's a matter of fact I it's the process you know covid thing was, was a major playing with a lot of stuff you know a lot of people don't realize it give you know some of it's real but a lot of it give people excuses of, of not to do some stuff and getting the supply chain and things going with book writing and other stuff was tough and i've been trying to do this for a while i try to get a hard copy of it you know where you can get a hard copy because i like you know, i've got you can look over and i got several books written by people different places of the world you know jim zombo and um Dang, the guy out of Georgia that I really liked that passed away, he wrote a book. They wrote a book off his stuff after he died. I just love reading stuff like that and learning, you know, different styles of strategy in different places where people hunt, say Alaska or out west and stuff. So I like a hardcover book. It's just, I guess it's from being old school where the newer generation might be more about ebooks and, you know, or, or uh, audio book. And I haven't done that, but a hard copy has come out like three days ago. So got some ordered for us the family but if anybody's interested in that that's, they're, they're just a little bit higher than the paperback so but it's been a process and i've really enjoyed it i've learned a lot it's you know you wouldn't think i mean to understand how much what all goes through to writing a book is a lot of stuff 
Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a lot of data to go yeah. back and, and dig through. You, right. Then you got to have it once you get it, you know, laid out, wrote, and uh, the rough draft, you got to do all that editing and have somebody do that. And then when it comes time to put it to Amazon, it's a whole different kind of process. You know, I had to get somebody else to help me do that because it's, I'm not, I'm not no technological, you know, savvy guy. So it's, it took a lot to do that, so but it's but it's but it's been worth it, and it's it's still in the, in the process and still happening. So anybody wants to, you know, then get on Amazon and and, and look at them and order them, or, or you can message me and if you want one, if you're interested. So. so they can find them on Amazon or message you. Yep. So what uh where can people find you at on social media? Social media, I'm just my name on Facebook, then uh Instagram is Michael Perry Nine, and on Instagram then uh. 18 outdoors on youtube so we've started that on our own channel this past year say like uh april or something. but that's doing pretty good it's it's you know i'm not it's not gonna be real fancy like a lot of people's stuff it's just gonna be real i mean everything i'll tell you or try to give tips on it is actually how we do it or or some other outdoor stuff but it's just gonna be about out like the way we do things outdoors and just trying to share it and, and uh, give some people some tips and stuff that's good. I, I, I like that channel. It has some really good information on it. Uh, we'll have all your social stuff and where people can find your book at in the links on the podcast. But I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on, and it's uh, been an honor to talk to you and see all these trophies in here. Well, I appreciate you asking, and, I'm, and I'm, I believe you're gonna have a good, good, uh, good uh, results and uh, good feedback on your channel and stuff. Cause you're lucky you're on, you're doing it the right way. So I appreciate it. I'm gonna do the best I can. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Are the Hunt podcast. Tune in every Friday for a new episode.